Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where every week we provide a new perspective on the events and the technology in the energy transition. I'm Peter White, CEO of Rethink, and as usual, I'm joined by our analysts, solar specialist Andrew Swantonar. Hello. And our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello. Meanwhile, our hydrogen and wind specialist, Harry Morgan, is on a ski slope somewhere in the French Alps, so he'll have to miss this episode. On the show today, we're going to talk a bit about President Biden banning the import of Russian fossil fuels and the fact that the uh, UK has done the same and the EU wants to do so by the end of the year. And we uh, introduce our first um, startup in our Talking with Startups series, which is Quaze Energy, which is um, having a new approach to geothermal. And we take a look at Toledo Solar, a rooftop cadmium telluride play that's coming out of the same area as uh, First Solar in Ohio that's brought to us by uh, Andrew. So the first story was in fact written by Harry. So we're going to have a uh, just have a little look at, um, at what it is he said. Effectively, we we were predicting and expecting America to ban Russian imports. It's now done so. Um, the EU can't because it's too reliant on it, but will cut some um, imports of Russian fossil fuels by about two-thirds and then eliminate the rest by the end of the year. That's going to be a miracle if it can do that. The UK has followed line with America. Both America and the UK don't rely very much on Russian imports at all. So it's it's probably relatively easy for them to take that move. What do you guys think? Well, it seems like it's in for the long haul. People are saying that oil is just going to keep rising. The EU is set on this this long-term plan to try and get off Russian gas and oil. And the war itself is, is still taking a while, although I think it's not that slow yet by the standards of modern wars. So it's, it seems like it's the new paradigm. Do you think it's going to be like this indefinitely? I don't know. I mean, the pricing is, of oil is, is obviously emotional and a reaction. I'm not sure that it's factoring in the actual availability of oil and the oil usage rate. Um, when we last looked, oil is still... 2% below 2019 numbers. So uh, I think this is purely an emotional reaction uh, for the future. And, and everyone's saying it'll go to $150 a barrel. It may well. But if you get to three or four months from now and look back, I imagine that will be an overpricing. So I, I suspect that uh, it's it's perhaps a little more critical in natural gas. Peter, when we were talking earlier, you, you mentioned a, another factor that could be important about... Uh, uh, about grain yeah I, I i mean i do suspect that um that this is going to lead to some kind of full-blown economic uh you know stock market collapse grain from the um from the ukraine needs to be planted now for the next three weeks if it's not planted they'll have no crop this year the exports of the ukraine are the natural gas that flows through the russian pipeline goes across ukraine and the um and their grain. Without those two exports, the Ukraine has a full economic collapse. And I'm sure that's the least of its problems right now. But that spills over into Europe, which relies on some of that grain. And that's going to weigh heavily on uh, stock market numbers. So, I mean, we can expect certainly a very choppy stock market for uh, the foreseeable future. And Ukraine's population and, and its economy has basically flatlined or even declined since 
all the way back since 1990. So I think a lot of these people that have fled into Europe and elsewhere are just going to stay there. And it's another permanent sort of reduction to that country. But um, how much of a win is this for um, wind and solar development compared to gas power in, in places like India, where gas is still being developed a lot? Yeah, it's it's difficult to say. There there are two main schools of thought, aren't there? Uh, we should invest more in oil and gas so we don't have to rely on Russia. And the other school of thought is we should get off oil and gas so we don't have to rely on Russia. And unfortunately, both are true. If you look at countries in um, Europe, the UK in particular, but Germany as well, they rely on natural gas for about 50% of their home heating. You've got a situation where if you stop taking gas from Russia, some of that home heating must be a shortfall. Now, UK, it's a very low percentage of their gas comes from uh, from Russia. But Germany, it's a higher percentage. And some of the Eastern uh, European countries, even higher percentage. It's up in the 70 or 80% of their gas comes from Russia. Uh, you know, you can't jump from gas to heat pumps um, in your country in anything shorter than five to seven years. So, you know, something has to be done in the interim. Alternative supplies of gas are essential. And every um, vested interest is trying to claim the centre of the stage here. Fracking. Fracking should be widespread across Europe, says, you know, the fracking community. Except fracking will take a lot of money, a lot of time, and there may not even be that much there in the UK or Europe. LNG. Yes, yes, there will be liquid natural gas ships that can be diverted to Europe, which will help solve the problem. But that drives up the price of gas even further as the demand is expressed. So one of the issues here really is anybody who wants to make an investment in new, let's say, LNG terminals or new wells below the North Sea or new fracking adventures has to be able to get their money back. And if this is a five to seven year problem, they won't get their money back. So they're going to seek assurances that it will last more than seven years, more like 15 or 20 so that sets back renewables considerably. It sets back the need for renewals if, if we endorse and embrace fossil fuels in Europe for, uh, for perhaps 10 or 12 years longer than we needed to. And that's the, the debate that's really going on in the background is, yes, divert as much gas here as possible. Yes, bring some more oil here. Uh, yes, some of the uh, producers like Iran, that have been on the naughty list, can come off the naughty list so that we can buy their oil and gas. But how long for? If renewables supplants them economically, that's only going to be six or seven years. And if if you make an investment, you won't get your money back in six or seven years. You're going to seek guarantees before you make that oil and gas available. So that's a, it's a very complicated negotiating position especially when the vested interests of the fossil fuel companies can see a long-term opportunity to entrench themselves i think this plays out economically i don't think anyone makes this decision politically i think politicians think they do but in the end gas and oil will come with a certain price for instance if you suddenly find you can produce your electricity in a country without gas the price of electricity would probably halve 
So gas and coal. You know, it's just a matter of renewables making themselves available, batteries being allowed online, more and more progress, and then suddenly electricity could fall in price dramatically. Again, five to seven years before that's even possible. So uh, the, the investment in renewables, I think, will be ongoing. I don't think it will stop that. But what's alarming is the way people will inveigle their way into the politicians' minds and get investments and guarantees for 10 or 15 years in order to help solve this crisis. So basically, it hasn't made that much of a difference to how much renewables is going to be built, but it's it's provided an opportunity for the fossil fuels. It's just my opinion. It's just my opinion. I don't think investment will run away from uh, renewables. I think that that process is too habitual and it's it's proved successful. I don't believe that that'll happen. But you know, you, let's say you're one of the banks that are being criticised for investing in fossil fuels. This takes the pressure right off you. You can go back into doing what you used to do tomorrow and say, well, there was a crisis, there was a war. So large banks who are used to signing deals with fossil fuel companies, it takes the pressure off them. Okay, so we, we're going to talk a little bit about this geothermal startup um, that I interviewed. Uh, I interviewed a guy called Carlos Arak, uh, CEO at Quaze Energy. And this is the first um, it, a series of video interviews available on our website. Quaze Energy is, has got a new approach to geothermal. We, we show these videos for, for free initially on our website for about three weeks, and then they go behind the paywall just for subscribers. And we did a write-up on that uh, this week as well. The idea is to use to stop using drills to drill holes in the ground. As simple as that. To Instead of having a... Um, a tough drill bit that breaks when it's three or four kilometers into the ground and then pulling the drilling rig out and then putting a new drill bit in and then putting it back down there. The idea is to use um, electromagnetic waves in frequencies between 30 gigahertz and 300 gigahertz. Uh, interestingly, 30 gigahertz is about the um, the waveform that uh, is used for 5G. So it's, it's a little bit like using 5G, but um, super-powered on the end of a drill to melt rock. And so if you can go in one clean swoop, this, this is research coming out of universities, really, but it, it was aimed at the fracking community, and now it's, not, it's aimed at the geothermal community. The idea is that you, um, you melt rock and you go straight through it and you do it in one drill and you don't have to replace the bit. You can go starting at one or two kilometres, three, four, five. He's aiming to get to 20. And at 20 kilometres, you've got a heat differential of between 300 degrees and 500 degrees centigrade between the top and the bottom. And that's using traditional geothermal techniques. You should be able to use that differential to drive existing turbines. So if you take a coal turbine or a gas turbine, you can, which is driven by steam, you can drive one of those. So he's, he's, he's saying very clearly... He can drill, he will be able to drill holes without there being earthquakes. He will be able to drill them cheaply. He will be able to do them near towns so that the heat, after it's driven a turbine, can be used in heat district heat networks. And he will be able to mature his business in about a 15-year time frame so that um, somewhere halfway into the energy transition, geothermal is going to make a land grab and try and take over from um, wind and solar or rather work alongside wind and solar as 
a baseload technology, a predictable flat energy output. I mean, I think it's a great idea and I think it's feasible. What I found difficult to understand was, would he really be able to meet that pricing? What other difficulties perhaps would he not mention? And will he bring that to market in time or will the price of solar and batteries and wind be going so low in 15 years that we can't foresee it? Did he, are there any prototypes of this technology? Um, it's it's all in the lab at the moment. If you want to know, the best way is that, to listen to the... I think this is really good as an advert for it. We did the interview. We did it on, on Microsoft Teams. Carlos and I just, just chatted for about 40 minutes. If you go to uh, rethinkresearch.biz and you go to the Click Energy, Click Forecast and Data... It's free for anyone to listen to right now. And in fact, we've got probably our second and third startup um, going up uh, in the next few days as well. So those interviews, I think it's always fascinating to, to interview an innovator who started a company and who has a vision. They, yeah, the vision can blind them, but normally they're very practical and they they, they have a they, they all want to be the next uh, Elon Musk and they're they're. they're a, and many of them have an opportunity, but uh, very few of them make it. When I wrote a couple of stories about geothermal uh, last year, it was the, the idea was it's basically the same as it's always been, but the drilling technology is a little bit better, but basically the same as before, and they get better resources at a few kilometres down. I did mention then that there might be new drilling technologies, like uh, I think the one I mentioned, though, was using vibrations to shatter rock, and it was actually at its best in very hard rock uh, and it seems like that might not that might not happen but now we've got this one which is what was it uh, electromagnetic waves of between yeah well it's just radio waves they're, yeah. they're radio waves i mean the thing about a radio wave is is if you give it enough power that's exactly what it's do it is a vibration and it, and it will shout a rock uh, in this case it melts it and, and i suppose it's not too different uh, from what you were saying i think perhaps um, there are different ways of explaining it but um yeah, we, we all know that uh, radio um, can um, melt things. It depends how much power you put in at the top. Now, it's one part of the discussion we didn't go into. How much energy does it cost to power th this this um, device? But he did talk about dollars per foot per meter drilled and changing prices there. And that's, it's clear, it's clearly, that's the whole thing. How do you drill cheapest and 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 the cost of the drilling process is the biggest cost in geothermal and if someone and he's not he's a realist i mean in talking to him he was a realist he knows that this is going to take a little while to perfect a little while to do a pilot a little while to build to build the first power plant and then it will catch on and um, it's going to take a reasonable amount of money. He's aware of all of that, and he still has a time frame of about 2035 before this becomes this starts to move the dial on uh, on the whole energy transition. Um, I wish him luck. I'm not going to pronounce him, you know, a likely success until we, you know, go a bit further. And we will go back. We'll go and talk to Quays in another year and see what see what progress they've made. Uh, and I just want to add one last thing, which is that it says he can go down to 10 kilometres or 20 kilometres. And what that means is you can build it quite literally anywhere. That, and that's his point. Yeah, absolutely. That's his point. I asked him for a map of the US. You know, if, if, if you have a map of the US, where's this most productive? And he says, well, the, the, the area where you have to drill the least to get that 300 to 500 um, 
degree differential was in the western northwestern United States, kind of west of the center, uh, and that, that that was where he was his first work would be. Um, so that that was. Um, and he gave me a little map. And it seems like most of the United States will respond if you reach 20 kilometres. But if you only reach 5 or 10, then some parts of it will be available sooner rather than later. Andres, you talked to a, a, a new startup as well this week. You talked to Toledo Software. And um, interestingly, I thought... Toledo Solar. Toledo so Software. Solar. Yeah, absolutely. It wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't help to be producing so software only. Yeah. Um, uh, we've kind of taken the view that cadmium telluride's had its day, and here you are with a company that's um, that's hell bent on on going down that route. Well, I'll be honest. I got fooled. The nameplate efficiency ratings of silicon PV compared to cadmium telluride. Silicon PV has reached higher levels of efficiency, um, but the actual generation advantage might still be held by cadmium telluride. Uh, because its band gap is a bit more suitable to varied real-life conditions um, than, than silicon. And there's various other advantages like uh, degradation. So you're saying it degrades less rapidly than silicon? Yes, I think it degrades at about half the rate of silicon. I'm not completely sure about the exact numbers, but it definitely suffers less from things like um, overcast days and temperature. So it has a lot of little things like that going for it. And you know, right now we've got this polysilicon supply issue. And so first solar, cadmium telluride, is the easy choice for America and even India, actually, which now is going to have a first solar factory to um, scale up its non-silicon production of photovoltaics. But, um, yeah, I'm not talking to first solar. I'm talking to Toledo Solar. It's quite funny, though, even during the interview, um, Aaron Bates, the CEO, kept on talking about first solar uh, because... Their facility is right next to the First Solar original facility in Perrysburg, Ohio. And a lot of his staff come from First Solar. It's, it doesn't seem to have been a direct spin-off of First Solar, but yeah, it, 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 is, it is the little brother. And the, the peculiar thing about First Solar is that it only does utility scale. And I think it has the majority of, of America's utility scale segment, even though that's grown a lot. Even, despite being a thin film technology that's not... It's not heavy. It actually doesn't have any rooftop presence. And that, there's a couple of reasons for that that I go into the article. Um, but anyway, Toledo Solar, I should finally get to the point here, is the rooftop offering for cadmium telluride. It, and there's a few other small companies that try to do that, but I suspect, I get the impression that they don't have the same technological advancement that Toledo and First Solar have. This is what we uh, refer to usually as a, a management walkout as opposed to a management buyout. There'll have been engineers in First Solo who thought, what a good idea, but I could do this for rooftop. And they wandered down the road and set up business. And one of the benefits is that they all use the same bars and restaurants and you can recruit in your local bar and say, why don't you come and join us? And and because they're not directly competitive with First Solar, um, it, it's, it kind of feeds off of it without there being an official relationship. Because I, I was quite puzzled, like, why why do you need this whole separate company? Why doesn't First Solar just go into a rooftop? And he, he told me, well, they'd have to build a whole separate production line because their utility-scale solar panels are simply too large uh, to fit on rooftops easily. And they'd have to think of a new business model, and they have plenty of room to work within in utility-scale. So that's why. I suspect it's not quite as profitable anyway as as a business, but um, I, I'm, not, I'm not certain of that. 
Okay, so there's lots of innovation in this week's issue. I mean, there's there's a few other stories um, that we've covered in depth. There's um, uh, uh, some short, lots of short pieces which point at um, new startups. But one of the companies that's definitely not a startup is my old friends, Intertrust Technologies. When we were writing about um, video protection, uh, digital rights management, twenty years ago, we uh, come come into what's thought of as the kind of founding father of the of digital rights management, effectively a form of encryption and protection for video. That's been um, and they came out of the the blue this week and talked to us about um, their offering for the energy market. I was quite fascinated and first initially a bit critical. I talked to F- Florian Golb. Kolb, who's the general manager of energy there, and he um, he's out of Eon, or rather Energy, which is now uh, I think part of Eon, and they have uh, a relationship there. And what what he's talked about is as we get more distributed in te- in in energy, we've got lots more forms of information we'd like to have in online models. So that he he talked about the uh, utility knowing all the customers, but you can't reveal customers' names or habits, or they don't have demographic data, and then demographic data can be purchased from somebody else, and then you can have a recharge network who tell you where all the cars are charged from, and all this these islands of data shouldn't be mixed and can't be mixed, and they're illegal to be mixed. But you can extract the piece of information, the summary information you need from each of them, and you can guarantee them this that this is done in a way which won't compromise GDPR rules or, or anything. And you do it via encryption. You do it in the same way. You authenticate every part of the process. You use um, what's called... Trusted execution environments. Right, so way back when when ARM was conquering the um, telephone market, and and most phones have seven or eight ARM cores inside them, uh, they introduced this idea of a trusted execution environment, which is something which the operating system can't see into. So you can't write a program to steal data that's run inside it. It needs access to the first the primary root of trust inside a chip, i.e. the first form of encryption, the first layer of encryption. If you execute inside that environment, nothing can uh, eavesdrop on you. And so slowly, all the chip vendors have started to add trusted execution environments with authentication and encryption, plus trusted environments like that. You can make sure that all of these data suppliers are happy. But When it comes down to it, it sounds very complicated. When it came down to it, it was a simple demo. Here's a street, you know, in Germany. We can do this for America as well. We know which which homes have got the money to afford an electric vehicle, which ones uh, have expressed an interest. We know which ones already have a charge point. We know which ones don't have a charge point. We know how much electricity. We know what time of day they charge. We know that this is going to break the grid on these days and we can work out how to make it not break the grid by allow by, by using a form of demand response or uh, augmenting the grid at that point or or and we can do this without a lot spending a lot of capex and it, this is a problem that's definitely going to happen we've we've in our um, annual primary electricity model we forecast how much electricity the uh, the cars electric vehicles are going to um, 
put on the grid. What we don't do is forecast precisely where it's going to happen at what time of day. And that's what the utility needs. It needs to understand, or better still, control the time of day when that load is, is put on it. it. It wants to work at its maximum level for as long as possible without anybody asking for it for more electricity than the grid has. Uh, this is a, this, these are, in fact, intelligence tools to provide that. And, and, and what they really provide into trust is the security that says, if you use five or six or seven different sources of data, we can jumble them all up and extract it, the information for you without compromising any of those Chinese walls between those data owners. And that's, that's a very helpful trick to pull. Would that be using a mix of devices such as smart smart meters, electric vehicles, uh, things that the grid utilities are, are using? However, they, however, the data is collected. I mean, you you get people doing demographic data, right? Okay, and they, they might they might um, summarise credit card statements from American Express and use that as a business mm, intelligence okay. tool, and then put that online for people to buy. The utility has got its own mm. customer relationship and, and its own delivery of course. you know uh, the, the the grid's got its own settlement system you tap into all of these but you're not allowed access to all of them so you can have summaries mm, you can have mm. you know but it's it's moving the summaries around in an intelligent way and and guaranteeing that no one can put a, a bit of malware in there to steal all that data uh, that, that's the hard thing uh, because you know cyber attacks on uh, energy uh, are a big thing, and you, you want to make sure that you're resilient against that as well. At the same time, um, all of this is really ov overly complex. The the the, the um, cloud providers don't want to go into this amount of detail. Anyone writing a, a data system, a, a data, a database of that it wants to sell doesn't want to go into that amount of um, detail on on security. You need a specialist provider. Intertrust isn't the only one. Um, they have been around for quite a long time. They're not a massive company. Uh, I think measured in the hundreds of millions rather than the billions of revenue. And mostly have been um, have come out of video DRM. But the, the same techniques are used for this. So I think that's really enough for this issue. I mean, I think there's there's lots of um, of, of we don't get bogged down in uh, the Russian issue for more than one story a week at the moment. We we, we know it's going to uh, continue to make the headlines. As Simon said, we we won't always talk about it in these podcasts. Uh, we're not the world's experts on Ukraine and Russia. Only we, our only contribution is in energy. Uh, but there's a lot of innovation going on, and we're picking up more and more of it in uh, in Rethink Energy. Rethink uh, Research Biz. Click Energy. Click weekly analysis, go read it for yourself.